Well, Father, the renewing of the mind, that's our goal here today, that you would take your word and shape us, um, challenge us, help us to allow the Holy Spirit to make application to our daily living that in a practical way, um, that we as individuals would allow the truths of your word to impact um, how we live for Jesus every day. We need your help. We recognize that we are weak and uh, frail prone to failure. So we're so thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your sustaining power. We're thankful for the the great work of Christ on the cross on our behalf, apart from which we would be so lost. Thank you for our Bibles. Thank you for uh, these times when we gather and you use it so well in us to strengthen us and to challenge us. We give ourselves to the hearing and the doing of the word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible doesn't tell us what the day was really like. It evidently was a fairly nice day because it was a day on which his neighbor's wife was comfortable to be in her backyard at some level exposing herself. We know that it was the time of year when kings were to be off to war and that King David, the one who killed Goliath, the greatest king that Jerusalem and Israel had ever known, was not where he was supposed to be. Perhaps gaining a little weight in his old age. Perhaps thinking himself to be something that he's not. Perhaps um, indulging in the comfort of kings believing himself to be, at some level, deserving of it. We don't know what he was thinking. The Bible gives us enough details to know that on this day, the dominoes would fall and life would never be the same. We don't even know exactly what time of day it was. We don't know what was going on in his mind and in his heart. We know that he was likely quite alone at the hour. And as he rose and walked out onto his balcony and let his eyes gaze down on his neighbor's property, there she was. And then it happened. Like some kind of a lever tripping, like some kind of an electrical shock going off, All of a sudden, an overwhelming sense of, you know the word, temptation. The desire to have something that is beyond the limits of my personal propriety. Something inside kicking in gear that that makes me want to have something that is not mine. And even if I acknowledge that it will do me no good... The flesh is powerful, and the moment is palpable, and the reality is, he gives himself permission. Temptation. You know the feeling. I've talked to people who, when they go to the store, their hands can sweat and their armpits sweat, and they 
have to keep their hands in their pocket lest they reach out and take something off the shelf that is not theirs. Some kind of a trigger mechanism generally spawned through the eye gate, seeing something, connecting the dots of the mind to the degree that I want something, and yet I recognize it's not my territory. We spent last Sunday in Matthew chapter 4 talking about this most remarkable incident of the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Matthew's gospel in chapter 4. We're working our way through Matthew. I trust that you're going to find this a profitable and helpful series as we examine this gospel. I thought that it would be good for us, instead of moving on this week, to take another Sunday and to to look briefly at the passage, chapter 4 of Matthew, and use it as somewhat of a launching pad for a more practical and topical message on this matter of overcoming temptation. Overcoming temptation. What are the things that we need to think about? What do we need to understand? How do we help ourselves as we grow in Christ and as we live the Christian life and as we hold our Bibles in our hands? What is the proper mindset and what is the proper preparation of the heart that I can go from here in this place? Part of why I love this place. Gathered with God's people, singing His praises, hearing His word, praying together, is because it seems so free of temptation. And yet, at any place, at any time, in any form, temptation can pop up. It can challenge us. What do we do? How do we live? How do we overcome temptation? I trust you'll be strengthened today as we uh, examine briefly uh, some of what our Lord went through. And also as we turn in our Bibles by nature of a topical series, we're going to have to turn in our Bibles. I hope that doesn't make you groan. Um, The only reason it would is because you don't know your books of the Bible, so you need to get with it and uh, learn those books of the Bible so that you can turn in your Bibles easily. We know that our Lord Jesus has come off of this uh, tremendous time of baptism. The Holy Spirit has come upon him in the form of the dove in a very real way, in a a very um, uh, clear and open way. He's now leaving the Jordan and he's going to go out into the wilderness. And when we read our text this morning, and just briefly because we broke it down last week, let's just remind ourselves that after he had been baptized by John, he hears his heavenly father say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then chapter 4 immediately says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. We know from parallel passages in the other Gospels that not much time went by. He was led by the Spirit, and so we pointed out last week that this time of of being with the Spirit in the wilderness was God's will, and it even says to be tempted by the devil. We recognize that James clearly says that God does not tempt anyone with evil, and yet here we find Jesus in full humanity, full deity, in the wilderness for a time of temptation, a time where there would be an appeal to the flesh, a time where he would have to respond appropriately and make decisions. Am I going to do this or am I going to do this? 
And so what we want to do is we want to learn from the model of our Lord Jesus. Our first point today is going to be somewhat of a review of some of the things that we talked about last week or we touched upon. But we want to talk about three different concepts here today that have to do with victory over temptation. Our first point is this. Victory over temptation means knowing the enemy. Victory over temptation means knowing the enemy. Glance back down at our text again. Not only was it God's will for him to be led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, where, by the way, the Holy Spirit sustains him and gives him victory over temptation, but I want you to notice that it clearly says in verse 1 that there he was to be tempted by the devil. So there's no guesswork going on here. We know that there is a contest going on out in the wilderness. And there's our Lord Jesus, a time of fasting. He's without food. Verse 2 goes on to say that it was for 40 days and 40 nights that he fasted and he prayed in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4 verse 2 clearly says that he was without food the whole time. We would assume that he drank water to sustain his human body. It was a time of, of difficulty, of spiritual anguish, of praying, of fasting. We remarked last time that the implication of Luke and Mark's accounts is that this testing was ongoing throughout this 40 days. We don't know if it began right away, but we recognize that he has an enemy and that the enemy has come to attack the Lord Jesus. We can only assume that the great attempt of Satan here was to foil God's plan of the ages that was unfolding at just the right time in world history, at just the right time on God's timeline, that Jesus would come, be born of a virgin, grow up, fathered and overseen in an in a earthly father manner, not biological, but directing him, Joseph in his carpenter shop, his mother Mary there, teaching him, him growing and developing in wisdom and in stature like every other young boy. And now he's 30 years old and it's time for him to be commissioned and ordained into public ministry. And no doubt Satan wants to attack him right on the front edge of this ministry and try to foil God's great plan. What a great coup. He thought he did it with the first Adam. You remember that story in the garden. God had a plan, and yet sin interrupts it. Sin then enters the human race through Adam and his choices. Through that sin, death comes upon all men. And now it's time for Jesus. Another name for him is the second Adam. The Apostle Paul calls him that in the book of Romans. And so Satan thinks, I got the first Adam. Maybe I can get the second Adam. But this time, he's dealing with the Son of God. He can't win. And ultimately, in verse 10, we see our Lord Jesus, after three waves of temptation, say, Be gone, Satan. Be gone. And he got. So point number one for us is, in the beginning, we recognize that Jesus had an enemy. It was the devil. So what I want to do is I want to connect now uh, the tension here. If the devil attacks Jesus, does the devil attack us? And if so, how? And we had better know our enemy because if Satan uses temptation to bring us down, we need to understand his tactics. One of the, one of the first things we want to do if we're in a great battle is we want to understand our enemy and we want to know how he's thinking and we want to know how he approaches so that we can counter it. 
So let's take just a minute and just look at a couple of basic verses. The Bible has many verses, and it is a fascinating study to understand how does the devil or Satan relate to believers in the Lord Christ today. Because he's in the spirit world, right? And he's not equal with God. He is not omnipotent. That means all-powerful. He is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. Omniscient means all science, all-knowing. He is not omnipresent. That means everywhere present. He has limited capacities. They are greater than our capacities. They are significantly expansive. But Satan is limited and held in check by the limited power that God has allowed him to have as he rules over this world, as he is now presently the prince of the power of the air. We don't see him, but we are being influenced by his schemes. So let's take a couple of, of verses here and just look, and let's go, first of all, to 1 Peter 5.8. 1 Peter 5.8. I want you to turn there in your Bible, and I want us to see what we have here. Uh, and, and, and just kind of recognize how Satan functions and what is his goal and what is he trying to do. First Peter 5.8, if you've been in Sunday school or church very long, you've, you've probably had this as a memory verse somewhere along the line. First Peter 5.7 is a good reminder to cast all our anxieties on him, for he cares for us. That's 1 Peter 5.7, casting all my care upon him, for he cares for me. That's a great little memory verse for the week, talking about casting our cares on the Lord. But notice Peter's warning to these believers, who, by the way, had been scattered by persecution, and this letter was a cyclical letter. It was sent out and it circulated among the pockets of believers who were spread out, fleeing for their lives, and he was writing to encourage them. And one of the things he says in verse 8 is he says, I want you, the ESV translated, I want you to be sober-minded. The idea there is to be disciplined, self-controlled. I don't want you to just be all over the place, falling apart. Be self-controlled, be disciplined, be sober-minded, and be clear-minded, be watchful, he says. Why? Here's his warning. Here's what... Peter, as though he's a shepherd and a pastor over these people, is worried about. Be self-controlled, be calm, be clear-minded, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I'm not sure I understand all the implications of that passage, but I understand this, that God's people are targeted by Satan for their destruction. The word picture that Peter uses is a lion. I can picture that as though jumping on a gazelle or something out in the, on the African plain, and it is devastating, it is destructive, it is to the death. And the idea here is that if you don't watch out, He's seeking you and he will devour you, so you better be careful. So clearly, the same enemy that Jesus had in the desert is our enemy today. I referenced last week that probably we are too too small of a fry, uh, too small of a fish to fry for Satan himself personally. But I want you to see that Satan has implemented tactics. He has laid down strategies, schemes, and these have been implemented, and he has evidently at his disposal a significant task force 
to help him implement this, and he has been shaping the course of human history and thought to his own end so that much of what goes on that destroys homes and families and people and children and college students is all a result of his layer upon layer, his year after year of influencing church history, influencing world history, influencing the history of mankind with his schemes and his tactics so that when some of us destruct and destroy ourselves through temptation, it is legitimate to say, this is what Satan did. He didn't necessarily do it with his own hand, but he has been laying down a grid of traps and, and of, of, uh, uh, of trying to catch people and destroy people so that when we fall in this temptation, it's because we haven't been careful. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4 once. Take a look. Ephesians chapter 4, okay? So we are, we are exploring right now under point number 1. Point number 1, the victory over temptation means knowing the enemy, and we are identifying the enemy right now and his tactics. The first thing that we see in 1 Peter 5, 8 is that he's like a lion, roaring, seeking to devour us, and he will destroy us. Now I want you to see what Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. There are many verses in the Bible to study, and it makes an interesting study for you to pursue uh, with a concordance or with a software uh, help. Uh, some of the names of Satan, the evil one, Satan, the devil, and look up some of these verses and, and explore and expand your understanding of his tactics. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul is talking at a very practical level about the Christian life. You see, you know, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're be, you become a new creation in Christ, but you have a personal responsibility, according to Paul's teaching, clearly, in Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, you are to put off some things and you're to put on some new things. All right? So you are to be engaged through the power of the Holy Spirit in cooperation with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now your Lord and Master in your salvation, the one for whom you want to live and who's transforming your life. You need to do your part. You need to do some things. You need to, you need to throw away some junk out of your life and you need to pick up some new practices in your life and you might need to ditch a couple old friends and get a new, few new friends. And, and find a few new music groups to listen to. You've got to be involved in putting off the old and putting on the new. And so he's teaching very practically here. And notice in the middle of this teaching that he warns us about something. Notice this warning. Ephesians 4. He says in verse 25, stop lying. Don't lie anymore like you used to, you know. You did your homework. No, you didn't do your homework, but you lied to the teacher. You didn't do the reading. Don't lie anymore. Tell the truth especially to one another in the church, you're members of one another. Verse 26, and when you get angry, don't sin. And don't let the sun go down on your anger. So there is a such thing as a righteous anger, all right? But if you have anger that is sinful and you're losing control and you're really angry, God is teaching us through Paul's instruction here in practical Christian living that that stuff will eat you alive and you need to stop it and don't let much time go by. In fact, at the end, by the end of the day, take care of that stuff, get rid of it and get that out of your life. Why? Because look at the next verse. Look at 27. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, verse 26, verse 27, and give no opportunity, what? To the devil. What's he talking about here? He's talking about that 
that as we have weaknesses in our own flesh and our own tendencies to do things that are less than the will of God and, and things that naturally work out to be destructive to relationships and destructive to ourselves and, and bad attitudes and bad habits and anger, that if you don't take care of it, look what he says. It will give the devil opportunity. Opportunity. What does that mean? I think the idea here is that our natural tendency in our flesh is to give way to things, and if that's not dealt with, Satan will use that to destroy us. So anger that is not proper, anger that is not godly-based, anger that is negative and it is sinful, if it's not dealt with, what will it do? It'll grow. So the next thing you do, it grows. So the next thing you know, you're mouthing off even more in your anger. And we have now opportunity upon opportunity for what we would say, Paul would say, Satan to use this in your life. And the next thing you know, maybe it's three years or 13 years later, there's a divorce going down. Why? Because Satan had opportunity way down here and he wormed his way in and one thing after another began to happen and you didn't take care of it and Satan now has opportunity. Now, was Satan there personally whispering this stuff in your ear? I don't think so. Can Satan read your thoughts in your mind? I don't think so. But remember that Satan... He he doesn't die. He's an eternal being. He's going to spend everlasting life in the lake of fire forever and ever. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 21. God wins. Satan loses. Amen. And so what happens, though, is he's been studying human nature. He understands how people tick. He understands exactly what motivates people. He understands what trips up people. And so Paul's way of saying that if you let this sin fester and you don't take care of this stuff, Satan will eat you for lunch with it. All right? Now, there is a factor here. And it is in James chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. And in James chapter 1, beginning with verses 14 and 15, James clearly says that In our flesh, in our bodies, just being alive, okay? So if you go to the funeral home and you're at a a viewing or a visitation at the funeral home, you can leave your purse up by the casket and don't worry, they're not going to take it, the person in the box. They're dead. But live people who have a heartbeat and a brainwave and feet to walk and hands to move, we talk about the flesh, this body. Our flesh is not innately evil. God created our bodies. And our flesh is not, in fact, we're going to get a new body and it's going to be based somehow on this body. It'll look different and be transformed. But our bodies, we're called to have our bodies be under submission and surrender to the Holy Spirit because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the temple of God. God dwells in our bodies, so we take care of our bodies. That's why we don't, like... I don't know. You know, you see these YouTube videos of these kids making their own videos where they, like, do a skateboard off the garage roof, hit the corner of the dumpster, and then go down on the sidewalk and blah, blah, blah. It's just crazy. It's like, what are you doing? And they're just trying to make a YouTube video that everybody will go, oh! And they do what? They break up their bodies. Well, you don't do that. Young people, you don't do that. Why don't you bust yourself up on your skateboard? Because your body, if you're a born-again Christian, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You take care of your body. That's why we would teach not to 
Not to use drugs or alcohol because why? Because it harms the body. And you can say to your mom and your dad, show me in the Bible where it says that. Well, it does say some things specifically. But the bottom line principle is simply, this is your body. It's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and of Christ. And so we take care of our body. That's why obesity is an issue. That's why we want to do our best to honor God with our bodies. And that is a repeated teaching and instruction in the New Testament. Honor the Lord with your bodies. Keep your bodies under control. Don't let your body go. And Paul even says specifically to the Corinthian believers, you don't join your body with that of a prostitute because Christ is in you and you're not going to join Christ, the temple of God, with a prostitute. Honor God with your body. He says that over and over again. So when we talk about our flesh, we're talking about our bodies, but we also know that, that when Adam sinned and under the curse of sin, that everything's not the way it's supposed to be now. So even when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't get a brand new body yet. Someday you're going to get a brand new body and all things are going to be new. But right now you have to live inside the body that you have, whether you like it or not. All right? And some of us spend a lot of money working on that body. All right? Some of that's good. Some of it's probably not. But you have the body you have. You're not going to, you don't get a new body. And that body, because of the curse of sin, carries with it the residual or the after effect of the fall so that things that God designed in us, the sensory system, can be used for good or for bad. The desires of the body that God invented and that God designed to be used in a certain way, they can be turned and be used for evil or for wrong. And so we're warned over and over. In fact, Paul said, I beseech you, I beg of you, brethren, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. You're to have a holy body. You're to care about yourself in a proper sense for the proper reasons. But this body, this flesh, can have desires that are outside the will of God. And that's what James is talking about when he talks about the flesh. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says that out of your body will come desires, and out of that desire can turn it into lust, and lust leads to sin, and sin leads to, what's the final word? Death. Okay, and we've illustrated this before. We use a trap, little breadcrumbs, you know, going up into the trap. Ooh, I really like that. I really like that, you know. I think we talked about a groundhog one day and things like that, illustrating that. You know it. You don't need that illustrated. You know exactly what it is for desire to turn to lust, to turn to sin. And ultimately that sin, apart from the interruption of the grace of God through the salvation in Christ, would lead to death. Okay, so Satan knows all about the flesh. So Satan needs to create a framework or a scaffolding, the world system that allows the flesh to just undo itself. So when we look around our world, okay, all right, do you think that do you think that Satan didn't originate and initiate and propagate pornography, for example? That is a scheme of the devil. Okay? These are things that Satan created and helped the flesh indulge in so that Satan and the flesh work together 
to live so that people live outside the will of God. Let's look at one more verse. Just let your, page, your eyes go across the page to Ephesians 6. And I want you to see here in Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 10, what I'm talking about. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now put on the whole armor of God, look what, look why, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Schemes from, comes from a word schematics kind of idea. You know what a schematic is, right? Every once in a while you're going to work on something, all right? And, and it has electronic components. And in the owner's manual, there is a schematic sketch. I'm not very good at them. There's too many lines and too many symbols and too many letters that I don't know what they mean. And I have too hard of a time. And so I get somebody with some, hey, look at this schematic and tell me. And then he tracks it down and says, oh, this wire right here needs to change. You got this wire hooked up wrong. And all these turns, you can kind of picture a little like a blueprint-like schematic. Satan has these schematics. He has these schemes. The old King James uses the word wiles. And he whips out his manual and he can open up these. Let me show you this one. And let me show you this one and this one. And this is what's going to happen. And this is what's going to happen. So in that sense, Satan has set up this framework, these schematics, that when we live it out, the flesh responds to it and we step in his traps. And so we can say, Satan did this. For we do not wrestle, he says, verse 12, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, what is that all about? Okay, Paul is telling him, look, there are schemes. There are outlines. There are plans laid. Okay, there are, there are wires crossed up to ensnare you. And you need to know, we don't, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Oh, if we were, then we could take a, a right hook at it. It's, it's unseen. It's not physical. It's spiritual. And notice this. This gives us some insight. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers... The rulers, I take it, and there's some evidence of this, Daniel chapter 10 for one, there's some evidence that Satan has divided the global sphere into a grid and he has rulers over sections of the globe. In Daniel chapter 10, one of those rulers is called the Prince of Persia. He's a demonic angel called the Prince of Persia. Evidently a ruler given charge over a geographical area against the authorities, against cosmic powers, and over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I'm not sure I understand exactly everything that's being said here. I'm not sure anyone understands exactly what that means. But you certainly can get from that that there is a hierarchy in Satan's camp and that he has minions, he has angels, he has demons that are everywhere, and that there's a chain of command, and that they are implementing these schemes, these schematics, these traps. 
We have good reason to believe that Ezekiel and Isaiah's account of Lucifer, son of the morning, was Satan in his origin and that he was a high-ranking angel and that he rebelled out of the pride of his heart and that he wanted to become God and he wanted to rule the universe. And so there was a conflict. God kicks him out of heaven. He now is given for at least a temporary time this realm of the sphere of the earth, this cosmic area where he has cosmic power, the ESV translates it. This kind of a universe where Satan is contained, he has a lot of freedom inside of that, but other than that, he's limited. He can't alter God's plan. God is using Satan even for his own ends. And evidently when Satan, and we can only surmise this and we can only put together clues, it doesn't say this specifically, because the Bible specifically says that in the rebellion of Lucifer and of the high-ranking angel kicked out of heaven that we would understand to be Satan in his origin, that many of the angels who rebelled with him are already held in captivity for the day of judgment. But evidently a certain number of them, how many millions? I don't know. Hundreds of thousands, legions, have been given the right to roam the universe in the unseen world. It's kind of creepy, isn't it? Your garage door opens, you pull in your car, you look around, you shut your garage door, you're safe in your garage, and you get out, and you got demons in your garage. you got a neighborhood demon that's working against you. I mean, I don't know how this works exactly. I do know that you don't have to be afraid of it if you're in Christ, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. All right, all that to illustrate that we need to know our enemy. Let's just click off now, Matthew chapter 4. Under point number one, in victory over temptation, it will mean knowing the enemy. Four things that we learned from the temptation of Christ with Satan in Matthew chapter 4. Number one, we know that our enemy loves to attack us when we're in the desert, when we're in the wilderness. Some of you have been there, haven't you? For the ninth time, readmitted to the hospital. Same old problem. It won't go away. Limited capacity to work. Limited capacity to take care of yourself. Feeling like you're never going to get better. And you feel like you are in a desert. You feel like you are far away. And our Lord Jesus was out in the desert. And it's in the desert that we're weak. Spiritually speaking, in times of of desolation. Times where there's no joy. Times where there's a lack of freshness. I'm just in the desert. You better watch out. You're going to get attacked. Not only that, not only was he in the desert, but he was alone. Number two, he was deserted. The enemy attacks when we are deserted, when we're all alone. Out in the desert, all alone, that's when we're vulnerable. I talked to a guy after the early service who spent a lot of time in his bed. Back surgeries after back surgeries and back pain and unable to work. Alone in that back bedroom feeling completely deserted. He said, Pastor Van, you feel so alone. And you feel like no one loves you. And, you're, and that's when you're vulnerable. He affirmed that. And he loves to attack when we're depleted. Jesus was very hungry. And in his flesh, he wanted to eat. And so Satan does what? Turn these, bread, turn these stones into bread. Eat. It's not God's plan to eat right then. It's not God's way to sustain him. It was outside the will of God. And Satan was trying to get Jesus to step out of the will of God. And therefore sin. 
He loves to attack. The enemy does when we're in the desert. He loves to attack when we're deserted and alone. He loves to attack when we're depleted, when we're tired, when we're fatigued. Watch out. Watch out. He loves to attack using his weapon of doubt. If you're really the Son of God, verses 3 and 4, Matthew 4. If you're really the Son of God, you could do this and it would be okay. Throw yourself down. Maybe you're really not who you think you are. Remember Eve in the garden, the same thing that Satan said then. If God really loved you, he'd let you eat of this one. Maybe it's not true. And so he uses the, uses the hand grenade of doubt this enemy does. There you go. You need to know your enemy. If you're going to have victory over temptation, it means knowing the enemy. That's kind of a foundational area. Quickly, let's move on in our topical study here of victory over temptation to number two. Victory over temptation means preparing proactively. Preparing proactively to overcome temptation. What do I mean by that? We have some tremendous examples and illustrations in Scripture, including Christ's own temptation in Matthew 4. But here's what I mean by preparing proactively. If you're going to win over temptation, the battle for temptation is largely prepared for and won long before the temptation ever occurs. It's what you're doing right now outside of the sphere of temptation that will equip you to win when the temptation comes in your face. A couple of illustrations. Here's how you prepare proactively. First of all, you're going to need, number one, deeply embedded convictions. You need to build into your lives deeply embedded convictions. Young people, listen to me closely. You're getting ready to go off to college. You're getting ready to go off to university. You had better have in your life deeply ingrained convictions. A conviction is not a preference. A preference, a preference is something to which you will yield over. I kind of prefer it this way. It's like, I like my eggs over easy, but I'll eat them hard. It's a preference. Conviction is, Janet has a conviction about eggs over easy. She's not going to eat them. Okay? I don't have a preference, but no conviction. I'll eat them all. All right? All right? Especially with pancakes. Deeply embedded convictions. What's our biblical illustrations here? Let's think of Daniel chapter 1. Don't have to turn there. You know the story well. Daniel and his young men, these young men out of Jerusalem and out of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar comes swooping down from the north, taking them away in captivity up to what is present-day Baghdad area, Baghdad, Iraq areas, where they would be geographically, out of Jerusalem, Israel today, up to Baghdad, Iraq, the outskirts of Baghdad. They know exactly where Nebuchadnezzar's um, buildings and his kingdom was built, his cities. So there's Daniel. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to what? They're going to reorient. They're going to re-educate. They're going to, going to retool the brains of these guys. One of the ways they did it, we know, is that they made them eunuchs. They emasculated them. Uh, they put them in education and re-education, uh, realignment programs. They're going to teach them all of the sciences, the maths, the religion, the faith of the, of the uh, Babylonians. And he's going to have to do away. But somewhere along the line, a little boy sat at a table, sat on a bench, sat in, the, in a temple. And he heard the word of God taught. And he heard the prophets read. And he had his mom and his dad teaching him. And he sang songs about God. And he learned verses about God. 
from the psalmist David, and he had embedded in himself deep conviction. And so when, when in Babylon, far from home, out in the desert, deserted, no accountability, there he is with these other young men from Israel. Evidently, Daniel's the one who spoke up and said, I don't do this. You see, one of the things they wanted to do is they wanted to feed them the king's food. Remember that story? It's one of the greatest Sunday school stories there is. Daniel chapter 1. And I imagine it included some good pork roast. And he was uh, an Israelite. He was taught not to do that. He was taught not to dishonor God. With He was taught to protect his body. And he was taught not to put these things in there. And, and he looks up at the guy and he says, I don't do this. I don't do this. So you think if the guy got his sword out and went up to Daniel and said, I'm going to whack your head off if you don't do this, that it would have changed Daniel? Would have been head on the floor. Because that's a deeply embedded conviction. I don't care what you do. You can kill me if you want, but I'm not, this is what I do. Our dear brother Wayne McKenzie often told a story. I remember Wayne and Carolyn are in Florida right now with Stephen and Kirsten Stephen is Wayne and Carolyn's son, our missionary missionary couple, Stephen and Kirsten. Most of you are very familiar with who they are. Some of you newer folks aren't. And Wayne, for many, many years, worked for an insurance company and would have to go out to the Midwest. He told me early on on those trips to the Midwest, I've told you this story before, he said, um, said, Pastor Van, it's really remarkable how men, businessmen out here, when they get far from home, some of the behavior and activities that they'll indulge in, it's really amazing. He said, they would come by my door of my hotel and say, are you coming with us? Do you think Wayne McKenzie had a hard time saying no? No, I'm not going there. I don't do that. I, I just don't do that. You're going to laugh at me because I follow Jesus? And because you're laughing at me, I'm going to cross over the line because I can't handle being laughed at? Then you don't have deeply embedded convictions. And in fact, you don't have friends if your friends laugh at you for your convictions. Those are not friends, young people. Friends who mock you and put you down for your beliefs are not friends. They're enemies. Get rid of them. Friends that try to get you to cross the line of your conviction, whether it would be alcohol, whether it be sexual activity, whether it would be internet porn, whatever it is that you're engaged in, if these are your friends, and you're, you, better, you better find a whole new set of friends. It, there's a great theological truth came out of Louisiana somewhere or something. If you sleep with hound dogs, you're going to get ticks. You just meditate on that. Okay? That just sums up the whole message, right? You sleep with hound dogs, you're going to get ticks. So you define your friendship group. You define the activities you decide what your deeply embedded convictions are. Not only do you need deeply embedded convictions, but number two, you better be thoroughly equipped with Scripture. Do you understand what I'm saying by being proactively equipped for temptation? You see, if you're walking down the road at a certain hour of the day, near the corner of her house, Proverbs chapter 7, as twilight is falling and you see her and she wants you to come into her house, is that the time you're going to develop your conviction? Oh, let me just get my yellow tablet and my Bible out and I'm going to come up with some convictions here. No, you know what? You're going to fail. You're going to fail. You've got to have your convictions built and ingrained and and just formulated here 
so that when you turn the corner, hopefully accidentally, and it's near her house, it's not a problem to say, excuse me, and get down the other street. I just don't do that. I don't go there. Number one, deeply embedded convictions based upon the Word of God, based upon a holy life. Number two, thoroughly equipped with Scripture. Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. Oh, so, so I'm in this moment of temptation. Let me stop and whip out my New Testament and memorize a verse that will help me overcome my temptation. It's not going to happen. You better proactively be ingraining God's word. Number three, I'm totally accountable to God. Jesus is the one, number two, thoroughly equipped with Scripture, who modeled instant Scripture quoting to us. He rattled it off. Number three, proactively preparing myself to deal with temptation. I am totally accountable to God. Here's our model, Joseph, Genesis chapter 39. You know this story really well is also. He's a sharp young man. His brothers have betrayed him. He's been in a pit out in the desert. He gets purchased by one of the highest officials in all of Egypt, Potiphar. Potiphar brings him into his house. God's hand of blessing is on Joseph. He surfaces to the top. And Potiphar has a wife who really likes this young man. In Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 9, it tells us that she began to come on to this guy and that she did it regularly. And it went on for days, even weeks. Joseph. Hey, Joe. Joseph. Until one day it tells us that he was all alone in the house with her. And no one was around. He was deserted. So the enemy could hit. She grabbed a hold of him in such a way that he took flight. And as he sought to leave her, he shrugged out of his jacket and she stood there holding his garment. It was later used as evidence, which put him in the dungeon pit in prison. But as Joseph spoke to her week after week and as he ran, what he said is summarized in Genesis 39.9. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He referenced the trust of his boss, Potiphar, but his greatest concern was that if I enter into this temptation, if I allow my lust to conceive and bring forth activity that will lead to death, and I indulge myself in this ideal, lustful moment, it will be a sin against God. And how can I do that? Listen. If you are not growing your relationship with Christ and walking with God and in love with God and enjoying fellowship and looking for the day when you're going to be with Him and you're going to be like Him and He says, well done, good and faithful servant. And you don't live for the next world. Listen, when you turn the corner and there's temptation waiting to take you down, you don't stop and think right then. What does God think? Because at that point, it's too late. So you better proactively be preparing yourself for temptation. You better know your enemy. Victory over temptation means knowing the enemy. Victory over temptation means preparing proactively. And ultimately, finally, I want you to see that you can 
live confidently over temptation. Living Victory over temptation means living confidently. You don't have to be afraid of this. You, you, can, you can be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And I want you to see that you have a great helper. And with this we conclude in Hebrews chapter 4. Will you turn to Hebrews 4, please? And I want you to see what we have here. This is based largely on what happened in Matthew chapter 4. And this kind of temptation that is testified of with the devil in the desert with Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 and begin with verse 14. Look what it says. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God. So he's clearly identified who we're talking about here. We have this high priest, someone who sits at the right hand of the Father, representing us to God. His name is Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Don't waver. Don't give up. Be strong. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, here's the million-dollar question. If Jesus, the Son of God, couldn't have sinned, was his temptation real? The answer is absolutely it was real. Look what it says right here. He said, he was tempted in every respect. And he knows in his humanity what weakness feels like. Jesus knows what it is to be so weary, you can't put one foot in front of another. I must rest. He knows what it is to be so hungry, it was tempting to turn rocks into bread outside the will of God. He knows what it is to weep and to cry. He knows what it is to be angry. He knows what it is to be frustrated. Every guy wants to know, does Jesus know what it feels like to look at a beautiful woman? And yes, only without sin. It's not wrong to recognize the beauty of a woman. It's wrong to take it to the step of lust. The two are so close together, it's difficult to do them at the same time. It's easy to do at the same time. Could Jesus be tempted in his flesh to lust like that? Absolutely he could. Could he have sinned? The answer is no, he couldn't have sinned because he was the Son of God. Okay? Now... We have strong reason to believe that the reason Jesus didn't sin in these situations wasn't as much the fact that he was the Son of God, 100% the Son of God, combined and embedded with 100% humanity, but the Holy Spirit in his humanity, he let the Holy Spirit give him the victory over these things. But it doesn't take away from the fact that his humanity could be drawn. Jesus did not have a sin nature, but Jesus had the ability of sources from the outside to make an appeal to his flesh. But he did not sin. Clearly it says in Hebrews chapter 4, um, right here in verse 15 at the end, yet without sin. It also says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, just listen quickly and I'll rattle these off. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That reminds me of what James says in James chapter 3, that if a person can control the words of their mouth, they can control any other desire they have. 
And if you can sin without speaking with words, if you can sin without words, then you, there's no other sin you can, over, you can overcome any other sin. And it says here, in 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. He never even sinned with His words. 1 John 3.5 says, You know that He appeared to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. In Him there is no sin. He had no sin nature in Him. In Him there is no sin. And yet he was a real human who could tire out, who could fatigue, who could have every other sensory response in his body, yet he could not sin. But yet the feeling was there. And now back to Hebrews chapter 4, look what it says. Verse 16, So let us confidently draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. From whom? The one who can sympathize, verse 15, with our weaknesses and who is tempted in every front as we are. Flip the page back to Hebrews chapter 2 and look at verse 18. Hebrews 2.18, look what it says. For because he himself has suffered when tempted. So he felt the tension of suffering, temptation. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Praise God. Are you taking advantage of that? Do you ever even think about that? If you're going to have victory over temptation, you must confidently go to God for help. Listen, this is a battle that's not going away until you get your new body in heaven someday. And so you're going to have temptation to deal with, so you better figure out the enemy's schemes. Number two, you better, you better prepare yourself proactively. But number three, you better learn what it is moment by moment to draw your strength from Jesus, the righteous one, who's been tempted in every way you have and yet without sin and who longs to help you. And you can come confidently to him in prayer at that moment and you ask for help and it says he will help you. He will give you the grace and the mercy. All of the grace and the mercy that we need to get us through temptation is there. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't mean it won't make you sweat. It doesn't mean you're not going to have moments of failure, but all of the mercy and grace is there. I praise God for that. I think we don't think about that very much. We kind of think we're all on our own out here. And we think we've got to do it ourselves. But you can live confidently knowing that you can have the victory over temptation because Jesus, the righteous one, through the power of the Holy Spirit, said no to every temptation he ever faced. And he did not sin. And yet he felt the pressure of that sin. And so when we go to him and we say, Lord, you know exactly what I'm dealing with right now. He says, I do know exactly what you're dealing with right now. And I will give you the grace and the mercy to get through it. Second Corinthians 10.12 says, that there is no temptation that has come to us, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will with that temptation bring a way to escape. Our problem is, we get to a breaking point. We don't care about the escape, do we? We just care about the indulgence. It's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for the truths of your word that are strengthening to us in our walk. Father, um, we recognize that we are weak and that there is such a draw in the world to the flesh. And yet we recognize that our bodies are to be sanctified and fit, that they're to be holy and set apart for your use, that we are in our bodies indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
And that in the power of Christ, we can go to you confidently and we can ask for help in a time of need. And you've promised to give us that help. Father, there's some of us here today that really need your help. And I pray that you would just encourage folks today. Some of them battling for years, decades. Would you renew their strength? Would you help them to recognize the devil's schemes? Would you help them to begin a proactive plan, preparing for those temptations? Most of all, would you show us what it looks like to confidently enter your presence and receive your grace and mercy in a time of need? Acknowledging that you know exactly how we feel right then and exactly what we need right then. That you've been tempted in every way we have, yet without sin. And we thank you for that. Thank you for your finished, completed work on the cross. Thank you for substituting in for us, giving us a great salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord, asking for your help. Amen.